What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I am Carlos Colazzo here to talk about the recently released top 100 prospect list that just hit the website today. Um, I'm joined by Kyle Glazer and Jeff Ponce on the prospect team to basically just talk about this 100, talk about the process, um, talk about a lot of the players who who we really found ourselves liking, the players that maybe we struggled with or, or found a hard time lining up. Um, basically just talk talk prospects this is a huge day for us we're obviously really excited to get the top 100 out there's a lot of additional supplemental content on the website surrounding the top 100 release so definitely check out the list itself and a lot of the other stuff that we have on the website to go along with that uh, Kyle's done a lot of writing Jeff has done a lot of writing so definitely check out their work but uh, we'll start with you Kyle H- how's it going how does it feel to finally have this top 100 out and just what are your thoughts on the on the group Hey, I'm good. It's definitely nice to get it out. You know, this is something that is the culmination of really a year plus of, you know, phone calls, in-person looks, data dives, just really trying to get a complete holistic view of these players. And as we put this thing together, we make even more phone calls, do even more data dives. Um, This is not something where this starts, you know, two or three weeks before we put it together. This is, you know, the lead up throughout the year to the prospect handbook. And then after that, we really dive in even more on all these players, make sure everything lines up with uh, what we saw or, or what the data suggests and find out where maybe some blind spots are. And we put this list together of all of us as a staff put together our own personal top 100s or top 150s, I should say. We add up all the points, see where these guys line up. It's more meetings, normally a couple hours, followed by more phone calls and more discussions with front office officials. Uh, nearly two dozen, two dozen front office officials, you know, we send our, our list to, make some more final adjustments. And ultimately, the top 100 is the product of all that. So it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, it's just kind of nice to finally have it out after, like I said, the you know, culmination of a year's worth of work. Absolutely. And Kyle, you've obviously been involved in this process for, for many years now. I've been involved for a few years now. Uh, Jeff, this was your first time being involved in the top 100. I'm curious what your experience was like in that first year, what your takeaways were, and just what you thought about it all. Sure, yeah. And I'm excited, obviously, to be here uh, talking about uh, the top 100 list with, with you gentlemen. But yeah, it was different. I mean, I think, you know, my my previous experience at, you know, past websites um, that I've worked at and, you know, haven't done it now probably for six, seven, eight years, um, it was always, you know, heavily biased and, and heavily based on personal bias in particular, where I think the thing that I was sort of, um, as I thought about it, particularly like last night and this morning, kind of taken away by was, just the amount of, you know, sourced information that we have, um, as Kyle had mentioned, you know, the amount of, you know, front office executives, scouts, um, you know, analysts, uh, folks throughout the game that, you know, obviously know as much or if not more than anybody, they're professionals and, you know, getting their input uh, and then making adjustments off of that. I think the other part of it too is, you know, how collaborative the process was, the phone calls, um, everyone sort of bringing, you know, their 150 list to the table and uh, the information that they had and their perspective, and then getting onto the calls and, you know, sort of um, scrapping it out with everybody and having discussions about this guy over this guy, where does this guy belong? If we have to move this person up, we're also going to have to move this person. I think just the mechanics of the list, Mm -hmm. uh, it was a lot more that went into it than anything, any product that I've ever put out before. And um, I thought that was a really interesting and, and sort of new experience for me, just in terms of putting together a top 100 list that was I think this exhaustive in terms of, you know, uh, everything that went into it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, sometimes those meetings can be painful and long, but uh, at the same time, I always find myself learning just a lot about players. I really love just getting able to get in a Zoom call and previously in an office with all the guys who have really spent a lot of time watching these players and talking with scouts about these players. And it's it's always as much of a, a learning experience for me as, as hopefully it is for our readers. Um, but I wanted to jump into the top of the list first because that's probably the most interesting part of any top 100 list. And especially this year, uh, certainly as long as I've been involved in the BA top 100, there's never been a, a clear trio um, of this caliber. Kyle, you might have experienced a few um, at the beginning of your tenure with Baseball America, but as we were putting together this list, there, there was a very clear top three, and it seems like the industry feedback backed that up. There are three players at the top who have legitimate cases uh, for the number one prospect in baseball. Um, we were divided as a staff on how those top three players would line up, who, who we would take personally. Um, but our list is at the top. I don't think I'm spoiling anything by giving this away. If you're listening to the podcast, you probably already already know the top of the list. But we have Adley Rushman, one, Julio Rodriguez, number two, and Bobby Witt Jr., number three. Kyle, you have done a lot of work kind of laying out the case for each of these players um, on the website because, like I said, there are cases for all of them to be the number one prospect. But how strong is this group? And, and just take us through a little bit of the process and, and sorting out the order and, and how challenging that was this year. Yeah, it was definitely a challenge. All three of these players are really, really, really good. And that's something I think is really important to drive home here. Carlos, you mentioned as a staff, we were all split. We were all divided on who we'd have number one. Um, just pulling back the curtain, I had Adley Rutschman as my personal number one, but I understood the arguments for Julio Rodriguez and Bobby Witt Jr. And the, there have been a couple years that I've done this where there's been a clear cut number one, a couple years where we're picking a number one from some guys who, you know, are good, but no one we're super excited about. I think back to 2017, my first one, it was Andrew Benintendi versus Yohan Moncada. Again, two good players, but it's not quite, fun. <laughs> right, not quite the franchise caliber talents that, that we expect. 2018 is one that sticks out in my mind because that was a year where it was between Ronald Acuna, Shohei Otani, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And it was very similar. We had a divided staff, a lot of opinions either way. Uh, that year, I had Acuna number one. And we really dove deep with, again, general managers, assistant general managers, pro scouting directors, pro scouts, scouting coordinators, just this kind of top to bottom uh, group of industry professionals. And ultimately, Acuna came out number one. And looking back, none of those three answers would have been wrong. Ronald Acuna, Shohei Otani, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. are all superstars in the game today. Um, we ultimately ended up going with Acuna. It was similar this year. I will say that this trio of Adley Rutschman, Julio Rodriguez, Bobby Witt Jr. is not as strong as that trio. That trio, even at the time, you understood was a generational trio of talent talents. Um, these three players are all really, really good. It's not quite the same caliber, but... In, you know, both from our vantage point and speaking with, you know, in, individuals throughout the industry, all three of these guys project to be perennial all-stars. All three of these guys project to be face of the franchise type players for their respective franchises. And as we kind of sourced everything out, what came back was, and I want to be clear, all three of these guys received multiple votes to be number one from sources throughout the industry. There was no clear, oh, this guy doesn't belong. I mean, all three of these guys had, you know, support from all areas of the game. Ultimately, Adley did pull away a little bit in terms of front office sourcing, just in terms of, hey, he's every bit as good offensively as these guys. And he's also a switch hitting catcher who is a plus defender with elite on-field leadership 
skills and defensive abilities. And that's just so rare to find. So I, I will say that there was a, a fairly wide margin when we tallied it up at the end in favor of Adley Rutschman. However, even in that context, most front office officials who said that then followed up with, but it's really close. And all three of these guys are really good. There were really only two individuals out of nearly two dozen who felt that it was Adley with a gap to the other two. Pretty much yeah. everyone else felt all three of these guys was it was really, really close. And, and Kyle, I want to go around and just have uh, each of our top three personal list. You said Adley was your number one. How, how did you rank the top three altogether? And then I'll let Jeff and, and myself go as well. Yeah, I ranked it as our final product shows, Adley Rutschman 1, Julio Rodriguez 2, Bobby Witt Jr. 3. Um, again, I think Adley just... Kyle won everyone over. <laughs> and there I, were again. people who who had initial top threes in a, in a certain order, and after our conversations and looking into various data points and feedback, people flipped. Uh, I am stubborn. I did not flip my order. Mine was uh, Julio Rodriguez 1, Bobby Witt Jr. 2, Adley 3. Uh, Jeff, I know yours was your personal list was not the order that we ended up with. What was your top three? Uh, and I guess what what is your case for your number one, since all these guys do have cases and Kyle kind of eloquently put out Adley's case? Yeah, so um, I had the same top three, actually, as you, Carlos. So uh, I we had we should have fought harder to get our get our orders in there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it was it was like even the front office uh, feedback, you know, obviously what you know Kyle was getting and other folks. And the same with myself, um, I was getting more Adley uh, toward the end. And, you know, and it, I, in terms of what mine was, I still, you know, uh, stayed, you know, sort of stuck on that, on that three in that order. Um, you know, I know a few folks that had seen uh, all three players and that's how they came back to me. So, you know, I, I kind of took that as, as gospel as they've sort of maybe had the best sample size. But I think with Julio Rodriguez, for me, um, I think the case against him is really just position eligibility. Um, we, we think about the bat and I think, you know, the lack of, and I hate to use this, but a lack of, you know, potential struggles initially uh, at the major league level. He's a guy that could have been up in the major leagues a year ago. I don't think any of us argue that it's the same for Adley Rushman. Um, the other part of it too, is when I look at the best players in the game, there's a lot of right fielders that are within that conversation. Guys like Ronald Acuna Jr., who we had, you know, previously mentioned, Juan Soto, Mookie Betts, Bryce Harper. Uh, these guys, you know, win MVP awards and are face-the-franchise type players. For that reason, I was a little bit less scared off of uh, him as a right fielder. Um, you know, Witt, I think the big concern there, I think in terms of projection, Bobby Witt probably has more projection remaining than any of the three, particularly when it comes to uh, his approach. And, you know, I think there's value there, certainly as a shortstop. Um, we got folks that got back to us and answered wit as, as an answer and made very reasonable cases as to why. But at the end of the day, for me, I think Julio Rodriguez, uh, just in terms of the impact he can make with the bat on a day-in, day-out basis without having to deal with the rigors of catching, ultimately that's what a differentiator was for me. And, you know, to follow up on that, I think it's important just to kind of hammer home that all three of these guys – if any one of them becomes the best major leaguer, it will not be a surprise. All three of these guys are just so talented. And Jeff made the point as well. I'm big on it's important to scout the player, not the profile. And there really is no knock on Julio Rodriguez, as Jeff mentioned, other than, hey, he's a right fielder. Well, he's a pretty dang good one. And the offensive impact he projects to make is one that could make him one of the top five to 10 players in Major League Baseball. And again, ultimately with all of these guys, um, it's such a high level of talent that 
while we do have a, a clear one, two, three, as we you know published it, again, if Bobby Witt Jr. ends up being the best of these three players 10 years from now, it will not be a shock. If Julio Rodriguez ends up being the best player out of these three 10 years from now, no one will be shocked. All three of these guys have that level of talent. And that's partially why this discussion was so fun, but also so difficult. Yeah, I thought part part of the reason it was so fun to me is because you do have all of these different positional profiles. We have a corner outfielder, we have a shortstop, we have a catcher, we have uh, a product out of college, we have a high school product, we have an international product. It, it might have been a lot more boring if we had, let's say, three outfielders who were kind of clearly in this tier, because then you don't have that additional complexity of the conversation, which is sorting out the profile and how much benefit do you give I mean, it's basically like a, a war calculation, but talking through it from a from a scouting perspective and how the industry values these players and and how does the catching value that Adley brings benefit you and how does the rigors of that position and maybe the games that you're going to play at that position uh, negate from the profile. So it was a fascinating conversation to have throughout the weeks. I'm sure it's going to be a conversation that we continue to have, uh, but moving on from the top three, because we have spent so much time in, in words on the website and we've talked through it on this podcast was there a clear fourth or fifth player or clear next tier? Was there anyone outside of this group who had a case to be in the top three? And, and I guess the obvious one is just the fourth player is obviously the closest, but how far do you guys see the gap from these three players to the group right behind them? Detroit um, offensive players, Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson, there are four and five. How, how close were those two? Are there any other players behind them that, that, you guys felt like we're, we're sort of close to the trio. We're talking about it as an obvious trio. So just how do you guys view the, the next ups? I would say, Kyle, I'll go to you first. Yeah, there was a pretty clear cut top three. You would find one or two people who would say maybe Riley green could be kind of tied for third, but overall it's a pretty clear consensus. You had a clear top three and then Riley green being the best of the next group. Now there was some love for Grayson Rodriguez as the top pitching prospect in baseball, maybe being at the top of the next group, this four to six range. But uh, overall, I would say it was Riley green, pretty head and shoulders above the rest. Again, he's played center field. There is some debate whether or not he can stay there. The majority of people think he ends up in right field. But again, as Jeff mentioned, there are a lot of superstars who are franchise caliber talents who are right fielders and corner players in general. So um, he has a chance to be a really, really special hitter. The power continues to grow. Got up to AAA in his first full season. I really was someone that a lot of people felt was, was potentially even the best high school player in that 2019 draft class. I know some teams that had him ahead of Bobby Witt Jr. and C.J. Abrams, even with you know the corner concerns because the bat is just so good. He was a pretty clear-cut number four and someone I think that has a chance to be a very, very special player that Again, if we look back 10 years from now and he's had a career similar to some of these top three guys, it would not be the biggest shock in the world just of how just because of how talented a hitter he is. Jeff, did you want to add anything on Riley Green? And, and also with Kyle mentioning Grayson Rodriguez getting some love up there. I know you were very high on him personally on your list. He is our top-ranked pitching prospect. I want to talk about just that group of arms and how we kind of cal calibrate the attrition risk of pitchers and just what this group is like, but wanted to throw the uh, the number four conversation out to you as well. Yeah, I think it. I think it is pretty clearly um, Riley Green, and I even think to a to a degree, um, you know, I think Torkelson, you know, Grayson Rodriguez, and then maybe sort of on the outside is like Shane Boz, where you know all could potentially have really good arguments uh, for being within that group. But Kyle, Kyle put it correctly. I think the fact that you know Green has defensive value, but we also know you know what he is as a hitter. 
Um, the approach is pretty good. I think the strikeout numbers were actually a little inflated if you dig into the data a little bit. There's power there, um, you know, more power than we probably even realized was there. Uh, and I think it's the same for his athleticism. That's the thing that I've come away with uh, over the last few years with Riley Green is he's a better athlete than I think we even knew at the draft. And he's improved in some ways as a fielder and a runner um, that I don't think we necessarily had anticipated. So I think for that reason, he's a player that continues to get better, um, kind of cements him there within that, you know, four or five group. And as Kyle said, I don't think it would be uh, any stretch to of the imagination to see him having a career that's on par uh, with those top three potentially. So agree yeah. there. Well, Tigers fans should feel pretty good, even if they don't have a player in this top three that we're talking about. Having numbers four and five is a pretty good <laughs> consolation prize. But um, kind of getting into these pitchers, um, they're always fascinating to talk through because everyone, I, at least my perspective, maybe you guys feel differently, but I'm always a little terrified of like when we're starting this pitcher tier because I do know looking back at the top 10 on BA top 100s, the just the hit rate of those pitchers is, is much more terrifying than the hitters. That's just generally the case with prospects. Um, but we do have a, a really electric trio of pitchers here. It's Grayson Rodriguez, Shane Boz, like you mentioned, and then George Kirby. Uh, initially, when I was putting together my list, I had a Grayson Rodriguez, George Kirby, Shane Boz. I think part of that is probably just given my draft bias, knowing how good a strike thrower Kirby was at the time and seeing the amount of stuff that he's added over the years is really impressive to me. Um, but as we went throughout the process, it seemed pretty clear that it was a Rodriguez, Boz, Kirby. That was the order. That's the order we have now. Um, but I wanted to throw it out to you guys. How, how do you view these pitchers? Would you be scared of having a pitcher this high um, just because of the, the hit rate of these guys? Or, or do you feel pretty confident that all of these guys are going to be providing um, major league value uh, at a very high level? Um, I'll throw it to you, Kyle. Yeah, I think scared isn't probably the right word, but you have to be aware that the attrition rate for pitchers is just so, so, so huge. Even at the top of a prospect list, you think back a couple of years ago, Mackenzie Gore and Nate Pearson were top two pitching prospects in baseball. They're still prospect eligible now. One is in the back half of the top 100 and one's off the top 100 altogether. A couple of years before that, Forrest Whitley and Jesus Lazardo were top 10 overall picks. Neither of them have established themselves. Lazardo's in the majors trying to figure some things out. Whitley's been sidetracked. So you have to always be aware of the risk with pitchers. In terms of what these guys have done so far, Grayson Rodriguez really did cement himself as the clear-cut number one pitching prospect in the game. There is a little bit of support for Shane Boz, but if you look at Rodriguez, it's the potential for four-plus pitches, which sounds insane because very few pitchers in the major leagues have that, but it's the real potential for that with the ability to command the ball to both sides of the plate. I remember seeing him even with Delmarva in low A and seeing first-year guys out of high school be able to command multiple pitches to both sides of the plate, power pitches to both sides of the plate is just so exceedingly rare. Then you add in the size, the physicality, the durability. He hasn't had a misstep, you know, everywhere he's gone, he's performed like an ace. Um, there are a lot of high level evaluators out there who feel that this is one of the rare pitching prospects who has a chance to be a true number one starter. Whereas Boz and Kirby, you can see it happening. There are a few more questions. Boz, it's with the control consistency. Can he repeat what he did last year? Kirby, the fastball plays really well in analytics. In games, hitters seem to get a better look at it than you might think and, and more hard contact off of it. So both those guys have the potential, uh, but Rodriguez is the guy that, I mean, everything is in place right now. As long as he stays healthy, 
he could be a really, really special pitcher. Just keep in mind, we said the same thing about Forrest Whitley four years ago, and then injuries and mechanical flaws, like things happen, especially with high school right-handers. So be wary, but also excited at the same time, if that makes sense. Of course, you got to you got to balance your hope with a little bit of fear. I think that only makes things fun. But speaking of the analytics of pitches, Jeff, you've been digging into a lot of the analytics for a lot of these top 100 arms. Uh, Want to let you talk about any of the top three that you'd like. But um, what do we kind of take away from the stuff that these three throw? Do they separate themselves from the rest of the pack in a, in a very clear way? Or is it kind of the, the mix of stuff, the mix of strike throwing, the mix of performance? Just how do you view this group um, and, and how do you think through their stuff or what do you what do you see from them? Sure. Yeah. Good question, Carlos. And, you know, I think they sort of put themselves into very separate tiers based on the things that they do well. Um, You know, Grayson Rodriguez for me is a clear cut number one um, for all the reasons that Kyle stated, but I think beyond it, when we dig into the numbers, he does some things that are really, really unique. Number one, he has, I think the fourth, third or fourth highest fastball velocity on this list. Uh, He does that um, while also having the third, uh, highest uh, fastball whiff rate. Um, and he's one of, I believe, seven pitchers that has a uh, strike rate of 69% or higher on his fastball. So he's getting whiffs, he's got stuff, and he's throwing strikes consistently. Then we take a look at his secondaries. And I really think this is where Grayson Rodriguez separates himself from the pack. He has um, three different secondaries. If we don't include the cutter, he didn't throw it enough. I think he only threw it 25 or 30 times last year. So he does have five pitches, but he has a curveball, a slider and a changeup that all have 60% strike rates and 40% whiff rates. And I can't tell you how incredibly difficult, uh, that is and how rare that is to see. There was only one other pitcher on the list, uh, that actually had four pitches with 40%. Uh, whiff rates or better and 60% strike rates uh, or better. And that was actually his um, system mate, DL Hall, funny enough. But Hall obviously hasn't been able to see sustained health and I think effectiveness the way that Grayson Rodriguez has. Uh, and he's incredibly physical. You know, I did have an opportunity to see Grayson a couple times this year. Um, and the stuff is is every bit as loud as you think it is. I mean, he sat 97 to 99 miles per hour um, for six innings and just didn't labor at all against the double-A lineup that he was you know, significantly younger than a lot of these players. Shane Boz is my clear number two. Uh, the reason for that, it's funny, and I, I write about this a little bit in an article that's uh, going to be on the site, but he has a very similar pitch mix to Garrett Cole. I know I had showed some of the numbers offline to, to Carlos yesterday, and it's Theory. remarkable. <laughs> it's, 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 it, is, it is. It's almost like they cloned him in a lab. His release heights are, are almost exactly the same. The velocities, the spin rates, the movement profiles, everything about how Shane Boss throws is very um, comparable in like a facsimile sort of way to Garrett Cole. I'm not saying he's going to get to that level, but he has a- Congratulations, pitch. Rays fans. You have an ace, one of the best uh, pitchers in baseball. Lock it in. You heard it here first. I was going to say, Pirates fans are going to be especially upset because they traded both of them. (laughs) Exactly. In a a short window of time away from each other as well. So so that's really remarkable. And I think, you know, just jumping into George Kirby here, I think, uh, you know, the the thing that's that's big about him and and very similar to actually uh, Reed Detmers is he's a guy that has seen his stuff take a tremendous leap, particularly in terms of power and velocity since he was an amateur, since he was at Elon. And 
you know, he has the third, he's actually tied with Grayson Rodriguez in terms of fastball velocity. They were both in that 97 per, per mile hour um, average uh, fastball velocity range. He has the highest strike rate of any pitcher on this list in terms of his fastball. And it's by a wide margin. He's a 75, a higher than 75% strike rate on his fastball at 97. Not a ton of ride. I think that's one of the reasons he probably gets hit a little bit more, but it's a very good pitch. He's got an excellent slider that he misses a ton of bats on. I think it's one of seven sliders on the list uh, that had a 60% strike rate or better and a 45% whiff rate or better. Uh, and he threw, I think it's one of the three hardest sliders in the list as well. And he's got a good change up in terms of movement. Um, still is struggling to, to land it for uh, uh, strikes consistently. So, you know, really interesting, good curveball as well. Uh, really interesting pitch mix. Um, but I do prefer, you know, Boz and uh, Grayson Rodriguez just a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, based on the things that they can do with strike throwing and, and whips as well. With these three guys, we've got two high school pitching products, one college pitching product. We, we've talked a lot, and I talk a lot, especially just covering the drafts, of how uh, how wary the industry is on high school right-handers specifically. I know in our top 100, Kyle, you wrote about this in our um, just breakdown of the 100, how the demographics kind of shape itself up. So if you guys want to see the full list of that, check it out on the site. But how do we view the high school versus college pitcher discussion here? Do we bang the high school players more? Are we a little bit more skeptical um, just given the track record of some of these guys? Kyle, you've done a lot of, of research into this and talked to a lot of people, and you've written a lot about, about this at the site. So how do you kind of view that element of their profiles where it's, it's not really something they're doing? It's, it's where they were sourced from. How do we view that and, and factor that into these conversations? Well, I mean, first and foremost, you have to look at what happens in the major leagues, which is ultimately what every prospect list is trying to project. Here's the 100 guys who project to be the best major leaguers ranked in order of impact. And what we've seen consistently in the major leagues is despite narratives about, you know, high school players having more upside and college players being safer, when it comes to college pitchers and especially right-handers, they're actually safer and have more upside than high school right-handers. Uh, if you think back to who some of the best pitchers in major league baseball are, Max Scherzer, Jacob DeGrom, Justin Verlander, you know, Corey Kluber in his prime, Steven Strasburg, Trevor Bauer, Garrett Cole, all these guys, these are college pitchers. Um, I went back and did this in 2019 from the period of 2017 to 2019, the top five stars in the major leagues and 11 of the top 13, as measured by baseball references, wins above replacement, were all college draftees. Uh, the only non-college guys you had high school, you know, Zach Granke, who was a high school pick back in the early 2000s at the time, uh, an international pitcher and Herman Marquez. And then just outside the list, you had Patrick Corbin, who ranked 14th. So, you know, aces for the most part, especially right-handed aces, come almost exclusively from the college ranks. And that's where this discussion of Rodriguez, Boz, and Kirby comes in a little bit. Ultimately, you know, the data points in favor of Rodriguez and Boz, the scouting reports favor Rodriguez and Boz. And for good reason, they're both great. But as you do this, you have to keep in mind that history tells us Kirby's probably the one that actually ends up being the ace if one of these three becomes an ace, just because you know, college pitchers tend to stay healthier. They're used to pitching deeper into games. They, there's a lot of things that work in their favor. Uh, Max Scherzer talked about this a lot when I spoke to him about it, that you know, in college, you're exposed to, hey, 
throwing 120 pitches, having to get through a lineup a third time, that prepares you better for the major leagues. We see in the minors, and in my opinion, it's getting worse and worse, guys throwing four innings and 65 pitches and being yanked. It's like that's not preparing you for the major leagues. So sometimes the experience these guys get in college is what's allowing them to ascend to that number one or two starter, which is not just about stuff. It's not even just about control. It's about durability. It's about taking the ball every fifth day and being able to give your team six, seven, eight innings. And we see college pitchers are just better able to do that. So I think you have to keep that in mind with this. Um, ultimately, we're going to rank the talent and the talent of Rodriguez, Boss, and some other high school pitchers is so huge. You, you have to rank them ahead. But history tells us it's probably going to be these college guys who actually become the true aces if one of them does. Absolutely. I wanted to also talk about the catching depth on this list. Matt Eddy wrote about this, I think, last week on the website. Um, just this new wave of catching prospects that will hopefully turn into a wave of better catching at the major league level. We, we hear all the time about how the bar is so low uh, for catchers in the big leagues. Uh, they're required to, to do a lot behind the plate in terms of framing that's been prioritized. Um, hopefully, we've got some prospects who are going to raise the level of play at the catcher position. We have 12 catchers on the top 100. Uh, I believe we have six in the top 25. So it's it's a loaded group, obviously Adley at the top. Um, but but this position group jumps out maybe more than any other position group, just given the state of catching at the big league level um, and all these prospects who uh, it was really hard for me to line them all up. Um, I don't know if you guys had difficulty with that like I did, but Jeff, what are your thoughts on just the catchers in general? And there, are there any other non-Adley catchers that uh, are intriguing to you that you want to touch on here in this podcast? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, there's a, a handful of really intriguing uh, catchers and, you know, it's a really, really strong group uh, throughout the list. I think, you know, it was funny to look at, you know, the talent that we have now, the talent that's in, you know, at the major league level and coming to the major league level in the next couple of years, talent that's on this list. And then even the draft class, it's incoming uh, in terms of it's really strong in the college side with catchers. And um, it seems like the position is just getting an influx of talent. And, and there's even a few catchers, I think, that are, are in the conversation, um, you know, of potentially developing into the best player. You know, there are some whispers out there, some folks that, that put Gabriel uh, Moreno on the same tier as an athlete out of the Rushman. I personally wouldn't. Um, but it's all there, you know, hitting ability, um, being able to handle a pitching staff, receiving, throwing. There's so much that goes into it. And there's a lot of guys that are checking all those boxes from an offensive standpoint. Um, you know, I think uh, Francisco Alvarez has been a name that has consistently come up um, as a guy that we should we should push up the list and and it, you know being one of the more talented offensive catchers uh, that's in the game. But I even look at a conversation that we had internally um, between the Padres, uh, Louis Camposano, um, and the Braves, Shea Langliers, and both of them are really good catchers that could be impactful everyday catchers that are good defensively. Uh, good offensively and could pr provide, you know, really high, you know, four plus win type of seasons. If we look at like sort of war metric or measurement for those type of players. And we do know that that position potentially, if they're playing 75 to 80% of the team's games uh, behind the dish, that's a huge bump in terms of value and being able to provide offensive value as well uh, will drive a lot of long major league careers. And I think there's a handful of guys in this list that definitely fall into that tier. Yeah, any, any that you want to point out, Kyle, or, or just thoughts on the uh, class as a whole? I mean, this is one of the deeper 
classes of prospect catchers in recent memory. Um, one of the things that I talked about with a couple of evaluators just in the course of sourcing the list out and getting feedback was, you know, hey, are we too rich on this catching crop? Just because we see, again, there's just such a high attrition rate for catchers, particularly catchers at the lower levels of the minors. And it kept coming back consistently, like, no, this is a really, really insanely deep group of catchers that we have in the minor leagues right now. One of the strongest we can remember and from veteran evaluators, Matt Eddy, uh, our executive editor had an article, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago now where he talked about how realistic it is all these catchers turn out. And obviously not every single one of them will, uh, but the class of 2010 was kind of instructive because that was a group that had Buster Posey, Carlos Santana, Jesus Montero, Travis Darno, um, ultimately 14 catchers who ranked as out of the numbers one, two or three prospects in their respective organizations. And we see out of that group, there was one superstar, a couple of guys who had long careers and four or five guys who got to the majors and were there for a little bit, but didn't have long standout careers. So I think that is instructive as to what we can expect from this, maybe one or two true stars, five or six guys who become everyday regulars, and maybe the other five or six don't quite pan out as hoped. Um, but nonetheless, th this is a really, really talented group. Uh, we've talked about Francisco Alvarez as a guy who some people think is a top 10 prospect in the game right now. Even older catchers like Cabert Ruiz, who he's been around for a while, but He's only now just about to get his first full season as a major league catcher, switch hitter, you know, plus hitter from the left side, growing power. And for all this you know, sense that he's been around for a while because he has on prospect lists, he's only 23. I mean, there's just so much talent right now behind the plate in the minor leagues. And it's fun to watch, especially given how much catcher, catchers are, are struggling to hit in the major leagues right now. A lot of these catchers have a real chance to stick behind the plate and be impact hitters, which I think ultimately will help elevate the level of play in Major League Baseball. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see all these guys at the big league level. Obviously, a number of them are are already in the major leagues uh, in limited capacity. A, a lot of these guys at the top of the list should be there very soon, so we won't have to wait too long. For some players who we might be waiting on a little bit longer to get to that major league level, there are a lot of really interesting high school players on this list. There are a lot of just, in general, younger players on this list in the lower levels. 
are there any guys who we have further down the board or, or maybe outside of this elite tier that you guys are excited about and think can make big jumps moving forward? When, when I was putting together my personal list, I was really drawn towards this group of prep bats that are in the 20 to 40 ish range on the list. Uh, some of those guys include Robert Hassel, Jordan Lawler, Nick York, Alec Thomas, who maybe we'll, we'll take out of this conversation just because he did reach the AAA level. Uh, but other guys like Tyler Soderstrom and, and Jordan Walker are really interesting to me because they're really toolsy players. They haven't really had a chance to be exposed and to um, really run into any professional road bumps yet because most of them are at the lower levels, but they're really fascinating. They're easy to dream on. They're easy to fall in love with. Uh, are there any players that maybe it's one that I just mentioned now or a player that I didn't mention that you guys are, are really excited about or really think can take a jump uh, with continued performance in coming years? Jeff, I'll throw it to you. Sure. Yeah. And I'm, it's funny now I'm looking at like the area of the list that I had sort of worked on and written a little bit, but there there's one name in particular that I think over the next year could make a big jump. Uh, and that's George Valera of uh, the Cleveland guardians. It's a really good bat. We saw some of the stuff that he did during you know the winter league uh, this off season. He had a really, really good year. I think that gets underrated a little bit by some bad sort of batted ball luck um, that kind of, uh, drew down his average a little bit from what it should have been, but he was a, a plus 900 OPS type guy. It's, you know, a good balance of bats of all skills, power doesn't have, you know, really impactful defensive skills. Um, it's really an offensive first profile, but at the same time, he has enough defensive skills that he should play a defensive position, be in the lineup every day. And there's not going to be a lot of questions. I think he's a guy with a full season at, you know, double a, kind of going into potentially some time at AAA and maybe even the majors if things really went uh, swimmingly. But I think he's a guy that could jump quite a bit. Um, you know, some of these, these prep shortstops that are in this range, you know, Brady House, Khalil Watson, you know, Jordan Lawler, who's a little bit higher, certainly could make a big, a big jump on this list. Um, you know, if they come in and perform really well at a full season level this year. Uh, and one other guy that I, I wanted to throw out there too was um, Louis Matzos, who had a really good year in 2021. Uh, I think, you know, seeing a little bit, you know, more advanced pitching and continuing to perform the way he did, I think he has a chance to really jump into the top 50 and, and maybe a little bit higher uh, come the end of 2022. So those are a couple of names that jumped out to me. Yeah. Matos doesn't even turn 20, I think until later this month. So he's a, uh, he's a, uh, he's a young and Kyle, do you have any names that you want to throw out? Well, Jeff just took my guy. Luis Matos was the main guy I was going to highlight. I got to see him a lot in the uh, low A West this year. And he has a chance to be a special, special player, uh, hit for average, hit for power. I mean, it just the consistent hard contact, you know, whether it's a, a line out, a home run, you know, even when he gets fooled on pitches and puts the ball in play, it, it's hard, it's loud. Everything you want to see from a young hitter is there. He can turn around any fastball in any part of the zone, you know, still has to do some work recognizing, you know, laying off with sliders down the way, but no more so than a lot of other young hitters. Um, he has a chance to be a, just a, a special, special hitter. And, you know, there's some discussion about, is he going to stick in center field, move to a corner? I was actually impressed with his center field play, even though he's not a burner, you know, quick reads, good jumps off the bat, um, you know, first step, you know, it's a quick first step in the right direction, covers a surprising amount of ground out there and plays it pretty confidently. I actually think he has a better chance to stay in center field than maybe he's given credit for. We'll see how his body develops, um, but he's super young and super talented already. I think he's only going to get better. On the pitching side, Taj Bradley, um, I mentioned on the Rays podcast today with JJ Cooper, but this is someone who has just, you know, he was taken as that, you know, projectable high school right-hander, super young, and he's 
grown in the way every team dreams of when they, when they pick a pitcher like that in the draft, I mean, his slider, it's, it's pretty nasty. He, uh, when, you know, when it's short and tight, it's, it's a wow pitch. The fastball velocity keeps ticking up, uh, talking to some evaluators. I mean, they think he looks like a better version of Chris, Chris Archer, you know, similar stuff, better delivery, sturdier body, better strikes. Um, he got a lot of, you know, wow type of reviews this year and just pulling up some video. It's, doesn't doesn't take long to see that this is an impressive young pitcher who just continues getting better. Uh, again, we're talking about a young pitcher in the lower levels needs to stay healthy, needs to continue building his durability. But um, the stuff is there for for him to become a, a true, you know, mid to front of the rotation starter and and be yet another ridiculously talented pitcher in the Rays organization. I'll just throw out a, a few more names before we jump into our next topic because I'm jealous that you guys have talked about your guys. I want to have a few of my own. But um, Yuri Perez is one who I, I increasingly found myself really liking as we discussed. Um, he's just such a freak in terms of the size, the velocity that he has currently, his feel for his body and strike throwing at that size, just such a unique trait. And, and the performance that he had this year is really impressive. If he keeps doing that, there's no reason why he wouldn't be very high up on this list next year. Two guys who are, who are fairly high on the list now, but I think could continue to elevate. And maybe we're talking about top 10 sort of talents a year from now is Corbin Carroll and Tyler Soderstrom. I mean, Carroll just has such an, an excellent all around game. If he were healthy this year and, and was performing, like it looked like he was going to at the beginning of the year, I, I'm wondering where we would have had him on the list. Maybe he would be more towards that Anthony Volpe range, given his his season and the premium positions that they both can play. Um, Tyler Soderstrom is a guy who I've been high on going back to the draft. Not I was high on Carroll as well. These these are all guys who have pretty impressive pedigree. But we just got nothing but positive reviews about his offensive game. The hit tool plus power combination is really exceptional from the left side. So I'm excited about him. Um, I mean, my I'm a sucker for high school shortstops. So like Jeff was mentioning, Brady House, Khalil Watson, those are two really toolsy players who. I think have advanced offensive approaches. And when they get a full season, uh, when you look at their tool set, their defensive profile and a little bit more performance, I think they could jump. And then another guy who we had a bit higher on the list and then had to bump him back down a little bit, but is Michael Harris, who is the, the Braves number one prospect this year. I think if he takes a step forward in his approach next year, which I think he's capable of doing um, and just focuses a little bit more on hitting good pitches to hit, he, he expands the zone a little bit more than you'd want to see, but he's got all the tools you want. He's an offense and defensive type with above average tools across the board. It is funny to see him here on the list next to Austin Martin, because they are two very different players in some ways. Um, but he's another guy that, that I really like and had a fantastic year on both sides of the ball. And if he keeps doing that um, and again, kind of refines his offensive approach, it would not be surprising uh, at all for, for us to have him higher next year from my perspective, but I also wanted to ask you guys about players who who just missed the list because it seems like with whatever list we put out every year, people always want to know who are the guys who who are not on the list. Why why did this player not make it? How close uh, was this player? Who are some guys who you considered, um, but for whatever reason just didn't make the cut? And I also want to be clear here: the difference in player number ninety, player number eighty on our list, and player number one hundred and thirty is much smaller than those gaps in, in just numerical value would indicate. It's, it's such a tight window here. And, and really, if you look at the BA grades on these players, there is a big cluster of players who you could make a case for, you could make an argument for. So guys, who, who are some players who just missed that you either really like personally and would have on your list, or you think could have strong cases to be on this list sooner rather than later? Um, Kyle, I'll go to you first. 
Yeah, Andy Pajes was the first player off of our top 100, the Dodgers outfielder who led high A central, I believe is what the Midwest League is now called, uh, and home runs, was the league MVP, and just has a tremendous amount of power. The big question with him is how much contact is he going to make? Now, he draws walks, and he's done a really good job cutting down his chase rate and his swing and miss rate, particularly in the top at the top of the zone and above the zone. Um, and that's been a big thing for him because his swing path is just, it's very uphill. If he's chasing those pitches, it's going to be a lot of swings and misses. So the fact he's learned to lay off of them and wait for a better pitch to hit is promising. And I think that could help him get to a point where he makes enough contact or at least projects to make enough contact against major league pitching to get to his power and start doing some real damage needs to shore up some things on base running defensive side of the ball, but the talent's in there. And I think as he matures, uh, he's someone that has a chance to be an impact player and someone that we look back on and say, yeah, he probably should have been on the top 100 or if things don't go the direction they need to, maybe it looks good that he's not on the top 100. Uh, there's a couple different ways he can go, but things are trending up enough. I'm generally bullish on him. And then on the pitching side, Hunter Brown in the Astros system is someone who has really, really wicked explosive stuff. There are some people who feel it's among the best stuff in the minors. And the concern with him has always been his control and, and his fastball command specifically. What's been promising about him is, again, you look at him as a guy who's trending in the right direction. He's cutting his walk rate the higher he's going. You look at what he did at Tri-City in 2019. His walk rate at Corpus Christi this year was way too high, but got better once he got to AAA. And, and everything just keeps trending up. So he's someone that if... The control and command can keep improving. I think he has a chance to have a, a pretty good career as, as a hard-throwing starter in the major leagues or impact reliever. It just depends on what strides he continues to make. But I think the talent is in there. Jeff, who you got? Yeah, uh, thanks, Carlos. You know, I, I'm looking at a group here that's sort of outside the top 100. Um, within that sort of 20 to 30 player sort of uh, mashup that we have there, a lot of guys, hitters and pitchers that were 2021 draftees. This is typically the year where a lot of those guys will sort of make or break, you know, their prospect status for the next year or two. And there's a group, you know, Sal Frelick, I think is one, Matt McLean is another, that with some graduations and, you know, a good month or two could easily find themselves uh, making their way into, you know, the, the midseason top 100. Um, I think it's the same within that pitching group. Uh, guys like Bachman, uh, you know, Jordan Wicks, who I know is a personal favorite of yours, Carlos, um, Michael McGreevy, uh, you know, Andrew Painter, even. Uh, there's a lot of these names that with, you know, a good performance, particularly in full season ball for some of the younger players, I think could really um, push them onto the list coming into next year. And I just think, you know, the skill sets for those guys, um, typically, you know, guys like Frelick and McLean, there's a really high floor there, really high understanding of just uh, the game itself, but particularly at the plate. Um, Frelick is a player that I have a lot of experience uh, myself, haven't seen him over at Boston College for a few years, and he's just somebody that can do anything in a game to, you know, help his team score runs, and that could be you know, laying down a bunt, you know, swinging, putting a ball into the gap. He's an excellent base stealer, and just a really heads-up player, uh, even defensively, so I think he's a guy that, you know, will probably, and we got some, some, some late love for him, actually, on the list as well, but I do think he's a guy, just based on his skill set, will probably translate pretty easily and we'll get a lot of love going into uh, the next list uh, when we update it in the midseason. And I think it's the same thing with Matt McLean, um, probably a little bit less speed, a little bit more potential power, a lot of good hit, and he's obviously a really, really versatile defender uh, in that regard. And then college pitching, as we've already sort of touched on, 
a lot of these college right-handers will solidify themselves as true, um, you know, mid-rotation or better type uh, pitching prospects, I think, over the next few months. There's also two kind of bounce-back candidates that I wanted to point out, and one of them is J.J. Blade. He has struggled a lot since the Marlins drafted him with the fourth overall pick out of Vanderbilt, but he made some adjustments in the Arizona Fall League and frankly looked fantastic out there, driving the ball hard to all fields, made some really impressive plays defensively in left field. And as this process unfolded and we were sourcing feedback from front office officials, he came up a couple of times as, hey, you know, the pitching in the Fall League this year was not very good. Everyone acknowledges that, but the changes he made give him a chance to really take off next year. And there's definitely a sense of we want to hold on this. We want to wait and see if it translates. But uh, I know my looks in the fall league were very, very impressive. Um, you know, the changes, again, if they hold, there's a lot of sense that he's someone that could be on the top 100 next year and be someone who, you know, we see a lot of times guys are, are late bloomers, even college guys who it takes them a few years to figure things out in pro ball. And Blade is a candidate there. And Emerson Hancock, who was the sixth overall pick of the Mariners last year, very, very, very famous name, a lot of pedigree from his days in high school and at Georgia, came out this year. It's sort of a weird dichotomy a little bit. You look at it, he pitched pretty well, got to double A, um, you know, didn't allow much damage at all, less than six hits per nine, but he had a lot of shoulder troubles uh, through less than 45 innings this year, had multiple starts pushed back, two separate injured list stints for the shoulder. And also the scouting reports were very, very lukewarm. He did not miss a lot of bats this year uh, with his fastball, especially his slider was a little bit soft in the 79 to 80 mile an hour range. So there are questions about him, but at the same time you look at it and there's something there that is working when he's on the mound. Cause again, you can't get to double a in your first full season with a sub three ERA and limit guys to less than six hits per nine. If you're not doing something right, uh, seeing if he can stay healthy, maybe firm up that slider a little bit. And maybe with better health, his fastball starts to play a little bit more in terms of missing bats. He's someone else I'm looking at as a potential bounce back type. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here on the podcast today, guys. But before we wrap entirely, I want to just talk through some notable players that we haven't mentioned yet, whether that's a player that you like personally more than our list, uh, whether that's a player that you found yourself really appreciating more as we went through this process whether that's a guy you're a little bit lower on or just a last chance to maybe talk about a guy who's interesting for whatever reason before we wrap. Um, I know a guy, just to kick things off here, that that I found myself really liking, and I feel like he was kind of consistently pushed up this list, and we've talked about him a little bit here, but Nick Lodolo. I mean, he, and and I think I've talked about this before in other podcasts, I think there's there's a bias that I have in my head because that college pitching class in his draft year was regarded as so poor that maybe I held it against him, but he was the top of that class. So I always kind of identify him with that. Um, but he's a guy who has really impressive control and command and the bats that he's been able to miss as he's consistently moved up the minor league ladder is, is a little bit surprising to me. I didn't expect him to have this sort of bat missing stuff, but when you pair that with his foundation of control and command from the left side, um, it's impressive. And he's a guy who's probably going to be at the major leagues at the major league level very soon. Um, and I think even looking into his stuff, it's a little bit better than I gave him credit for prior to this process. So that's a guy for me who I found myself really liking more. Uh, but Jeff, are there any players like that for you or, or players that you just find interesting for one reason or another? Yeah, there were a couple of pitchers that, in, in you know, like I said, I've been working on some stuff on uh, the pitching side and digging in a little bit for an article on the pitchers in the top 100. So gone through a lot of these numbers. Uh, Matthew Levertor is one in particular that sticks out for me. Uh, I was a little bit lower on Libertor coming into the process. Um, you know, he's one of these guys where, you know, big 
prep pedigree, gets traded by a really smart organization uh, in Tampa Bay. And they gave, you know, St. Louis gives him a really aggressive assignment, credit, credit to him and, and credit to the Cardinals for challenging him. At first, it didn't look great. It's not somebody that dominates with the fastball. But I was impressed uh, at how sort of, you know, with the experience he had at the Olympics and then in AAA, facing the level of competition he did, he was able to change things on the fly, go to a four-seam fastball a little bit more, locate his, his two-seam fastball in different areas of the zone that drove better results. And ultimately, he really developed his slider over the last couple of years. Um, I think it has the highest strike rate of any slider uh, on the top one, thrown by a pitcher on the top 100. Um, and it had a, a whiff rate of 40% or, or better than that. I think he might have been the only guy that, that had that distinction. So I think Libertor deserves a little bit of credit in that regard. Um, somebody that I think uh, can be divisive, uh, particularly within sort of the, the pitching prospect nerd community, or you want to call it, um, where there are some folks that really don't like Libertor's pitch mix. I being one of those initially coming in, uh, have come out with another appreciation for him for the things that he was able to do and the stuff that he does do really well. One other name that I think is really fascinating uh, is Daniel Espino of the Cleveland Guardians. I don't know if I mentioned this earlier. He has a slider that uh, I, arguably it might be the best pitch of any thrown by any pitcher in the top 100. He has a 70% plus strike rate and a 67% whiff rate. Um, that's absurd. You don't see that really on any pitch, like even the majors, the world. Um, that's so unique that he commands something so well and misses bats at such a high rate. And it's his go-to secondary. So I thought that was really impressive. Um, Espino's a guy that if he gets that kind of pinpoint command across the rest of his arsenal, I think that you know potentially speaks to a really bright future. One other thing I'll add on that is Cleveland has shown – uh, the ability to take guys that command their sliders at, you know, at sort of that elite level and take them to the next step, you know, the next level in the major leagues. So I'm really interested to see uh, what Espino does over the next couple of years, because I think he has a high baseline of, of, uh, you know, foundation of really being uh, a starting pitcher more so than I had thought coming into the process where I really just looked at him as like, oh, this guy's going to be a two pitch reliever. There might be a little bit more. Kyle, how about you? Anyone jump out that uh, that we haven't mentioned yet, or, or just um, intriguing players from your perspective? Yeah, Jeremy Pena, the Astros shortstop, is someone that I think fell a little bit under the radar this year because he broke his wrist earlier in the season, missed most of it, didn't come back to the very end. But when he came out of Maine, he was this really slick defensive shortstop who had a lot of questions about how much impact is he going to make at the plate? Is he strong enough? He really used the 2020 shutdown to get a lot stronger. And even at Instructs last year, I remember talking to some officials saying, hey, Jeremy Pena showed up bigger. He's he's hit making a lot of hard contact and he bulked up without losing any of that agility or grace or fluidity at shortstop. This might be something again, this year he was a potential breakout candidate. The broken wrist kind of ruined that. But when he came back and jumping straight to triple a, he was really, really, really impactful. And you look at some of the power numbers he put up. It's easy to say, well, it was triple a West, which is the old PCL. However, he played at Sugarland, which is actually a very, very, very pitcher-friendly park. Uh, 10 homers in 37 games, you know, some doubles, some triples, uh, hit nearly 300 with an OPS over 900. I think we're looking at someone here who, if he had had a full season of health, 
we'd be talking about as a top 50 prospect, maybe even a top 30 or 40 prospect as a really good defensive shortstop who projects to make an impact offensively. And if the Astros lose Carlos Correa in free agency as expected, there's a very real belief that this guy will step in and be their everyday shortstop. Again, not anywhere near the level of a Carlos Correa, but after some initial adjustments to the level of competition, has a chance to, to be a very, very good player who is not a black hole for the Astros and, and helps them kind of withstand the loss. Again, not comparing him to Correa, but um, someone who could be a very good player and, and make the loss, the potential loss, I should say. Correa isn't officially gone yet. Sting a little bit. And then the last guy I think we we need to talk about just more as someone who's intriguing because he's a giant question mark is Mackenzie Gore. He was the top pitching prospect in baseball as recently as two years ago. And now he's off the top 100 entirely. He had to get sent down from AAA this year to go back and really fix everything. His release point, his weight transfer, his leg kick, you know, everything about his delivery and just kind of get right. It was starting to affect him mentally as well as physically. He came back up, you know, slowly made his way up through the lower levels of the minors, got some time in the fall league. And look, if you like Mackenzie Gore and you believe in Mackenzie Gore, and there are some people who do, they say, Hey, this was his bad year when everything that went wrong could have. And he still struck out nearly 11 per nine you know, he's still pitched to a sub four ERA. Like there's still things to like here. He's still a lefty up to 98 with flashes of three plus secondaries. If you are less bullish on him, you see a guy who really, really, really struggles to throw strikes for any consistent period of time. And, you know, again, we can talk about flashes of this or that. What makes someone an effective major league starter is the ability to throw strikes consistently over five, six, seven innings every fifth day over the course of a major league season. And there are a lot of questions whether Mackenzie Gore can do that right now. So this is going to be a very, very big year for Mackenzie Gore. It's gone backward two years in a row, 2020 at the alternate site, 2021 back when minor league play resumed. Again, does that 98 with flashes of three secondaries become more consistent? Because if so, hey, we're looking at a guy who, by the way, is still pretty young. He's only 22. He doesn't turn 23 until November. And then maybe he can get back on track and be that potential dominant starting pitcher that everyone dreamed of, but it needs to reverse course a little bit here. It's gone the wrong way two years in a row. And, and he's just a giant question mark. The Padres are bullish because I think they have to be, but um, pretty much anyone not employed by the Padres has a lot more questions. Yeah, that's a, that's a great call, Kyle. He's definitely one that'll be fascinating to watch. I mean, both him and DL Hall are two prep left-handed pitchers who were taken in that 2017 draft class who, for a lot of reasons, you can get excited about them both, but they they both have very significant questions as, as well that they need to answer. Um, I think that about wraps it up for today on our Top 100 podcast. Um, thank you guys for listening. Thank you to everyone who is a, a Baseball baseball America subscriber and is keeping up with our content on the website. Um, hopefully this has sated your prospect thirst a little bit. Um, but before we get out of here entirely, I want to let Jeff and Kyle plug anything they have coming up, anything that, that you guys listening should be aware of Jeff, anything that you want to plug, anything you're working on that you want our listeners to be aware of? Yeah, sure. I'm doing an article on the top pitches in the top 100. So a lot of the stuff we talked about today, I'll go into further detail, uh, actually rank a top five plus for fastballs. Pit, total pitch mixes, uh, sliders, curveballs, and changeups, and sort of dig into why I like one over the other. And a lot of it is really just based on what the results that they drive. But uh, 
really dug in deep there. And I think it's going to be a really interesting article coming your way. Yeah, I'm excited to read it. And if you're listening to this podcast, you've got a little sneak peek of some of the stuff that's in there. Kyle, do you have anything you, you want to plug? What are you working on? What's going on in uh, California? Yeah, I've got a couple of top 100 related articles. I'm going to put together a group of five players in the back half of the top 100 who could take a big jump next year and potentially be top 25 caliber prospects. We talked about some of them on this podcast, but I'm going to dive a little deeper into those guys. And I'm also going to put together a list of 10 guys who are not on the top 100, but could very well end up having much better careers than a lot of the guys who are on the top 100. We see every year, especially sometimes upper level hitters who are performing that for whatever reason, fall under the radar. You know, recent examples, Jared Walsh, Jake Cronenworth, Randy Rosarena, all guys who raked in AAA, didn't make a top 100 and are now in the case of Walsh and Cronenworth, all-stars in the case of Rosarena, the reigning American league rookie of the year and postseason Babe Ruth, um, you know, guys like that, you know, who are some potential guys like that in the minor leagues. And again, even go back further uh, before my time at BA um, again, the hit rate on top 100 prospects is extremely high. I've looked it up. I believe it's about 75% of all players who became all-stars in the major leagues were top 100 prospects at some point. But there are guys who slip through. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt and Jose Altuve are two great examples. So I'm going to be looking at 10 players who kind of fit that mold of someone that's not on a top 100 list and maybe even not really considered for a top 100 list, but we should be paying attention to and, and might end up being better players than we or anyone else expects. Nice. I'm excited to read that one as well, Kyle. So uh, you guys should be on the lookout for that. Um, if you want to follow Jeff and Kyle on Twitter, Jeff is at Jeff Ponce BA. Kyle is at Kyle A. Glazer. If you want to follow me, I'm at Carlos A. Colazzo. Again, thank you all for listening to the podcast. Thank you guys for rating and reviewing. If that's something you've taken the time to do, if you have not and you would like to, you can on iTunes. You can listen to the podcast on really any podcast catcher that you prefer. Um, but yeah, thanks for, for listening and joining us for a top 100 conversation and, um, for Jeff, for Kyle, I'm Carlos. We'll see you next time, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.